Hello and welcome. The following message is from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. Well, as I've looked into the circumstances of my mom's excommunication, here's my understanding. My mom, Yvonne, was excommunicated from the Roman Catholic Church before I was born. And it happened in a letter from the priest, and she was allowed to come to Mass, but she was not allowed to take communion, not until she agreed to have all of her kids baptized and go to Catholic school. Now, some of you would know, I'm, I'm one of eight kids that my, that my parents raised, but you might not know that my mother was actually excommunicated. And why is that? Well, it's because my dad is her second husband. Well, they're divorced now. But by the time that she met my father, my mom had been previously married. And that marriage didn't end biblically. Okay, And so our priest, the parish priest, took the position, well, ma'am, God hates divorce. And scripture says so. And we, the church cannot possibly tolerate what God hates. We cannot accommodate that. And, you know, today, you and I, we would have lots of questions about divorce and remarriage. And we're going to spend some time looking at those. I assume that you're going to text in your questions if we don't answer them in the, in the message. But one of those questions that we want to deal with off the top is, does he hate divorce? Number two, we want to answer, what breaks a marriage? Third question we want to answer is, when can a Christian divorce and remarry? Number four, what do divorced people need from the church? And then we'll wrap it up with a few table manners questions. So the place I want to begin is with the question, does God hate divorce? Does God actually hate divorce? Look with me at the screen. You'll see Malachi chapter 2 verse 16, where it says in many versions, For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. Now, quick survey. How many of us had a pastor or teacher who said, as they studied this text, or as they taught on this text, you know, in all of Scripture, the only sin that God says that he hates is a divorce. And so, this thing is extra sinful. It's extra serious to God. Don't divorce, because God hates it. How many of you heard a message like that? Yeah, for sure. Turns out that's not what God actually said. Have a look at the screen here. You'll see some of the more modern versions have been updated in light of what we've learned. You know, as we learn about how ancient languages work, we have to update our translations. And so versions like the New International, the English Standard Version, the Christian Standard Bible, they have changed their translations and updated them in order to show this text is actually a rebuke on men who harm their wives, it doesn't actually say, I, the Lord, hate divorce. That's kind of a big deal, isn't it? Now, I'm not saying God loves divorce. I'm saying that when this text was used in order to marginalize certain sinners over others, I'm saying that was wrong. That was wrong, and it was based on a bad translation. And how many people suffered as a result? How many people were excluded and marginalized as a result? You know, it turns out divorced people are actually in pretty good company. Jeremiah 3, God says, I gave faithless Israel her certificate of divorce and sent her away because of all her adulteries. So God himself, it seems, is a divorcee. After after having put up with Israel's uh, spiritual adultery for, for centuries, 
God divorced Israel, and it wasn't wrong of him to do that. And there's, a, there's actually a whole book about that called Hosea in the Old Testament, where it tells the story of God's choice to divorce Israel and his plan later to be reunited with her. But if we want to build a theology of divorce, we can't ignore these pieces. God himself is divorced, and it turns out he doesn't hate divorce the way we thought he did. Now, is it okay to say God hates divorce? And I would say, yes, in this sense. Like, divorce is evidence of how sin has ruined everything that it touches, including marriage. So yes, in that sense, God hates divorce. But does God hate divorce in the sense that he hates it when people get divorced? No. I don't think so. God has actually given us guidelines in scripture for when divorce is allowed, and sometimes it's preferable. Is it okay to say that God hates people who get a divorce? No, absolutely not. And and that's an important thing that Paul is going to make a case for today in 1 Corinthians 7. But first, let's go back and answer the question, what breaks a marriage? Because everything that Paul's going to say in 1 Corinthians 7 is going to come from his understanding of the Old Testament. So in the Old Testament, there are two things that break a marriage. And they are carried forward into the New Testament. In fact, one of these things Jesus mentions explicitly, and the other one he doesn't. But the first thing that breaks a marriage is sexual immorality. Okay? Sexual immorality breaks a marriage. Go back to Deuteronomy 24. You've got Moses there where he envisions a situation where a man divorces his wife because she becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her and he writes her a certificate of divorce. And you read that and you're like, really? Like, what does that mean that she becomes displeasing to him or that he finds something indecent? What what does that mean? And so you had some people, like more liberal folks, liberal rabbis who would translate this and, and interpret it to say that, well, divorce can basically be for any cause. And so you had couples in ancient Israel who were getting certificates of divorce because one of them had burnt the cooking or maybe one of them had spent too much money or another one had 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 too many wrinkles, okay? And so the liberal rabbis, they loved this passage because it seemed to give them what they would call this any-cause divorce policy, and it was rampant. By the time we get to Jesus, this any-cause divorce is, is alive and well. On the other hand, you had more conservative groups, more conservative rabbis, particularly the Pharisees over the, over the centuries, who had the more traditional view, who felt, no, 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 this passage isn't creating a different kind of divorce. It's honoring what we already know about divorce, which is that it's acceptable for sexual immorality. And so fast forward all the way to Jesus' day in Matthew 19, you have a situation where the Pharisees come to Jesus to test him, and they ask is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? And that seems like a weird question unless you know the context from Deuteronomy 24. What they're really asking is, Jesus, what do you think about the any cause divorce policy? What do you think of that? And well, Jesus gives his answer in verses 8 and 9. He says, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your, your hearts were hard. But that's not the plan. That's not how it was meant to be in the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. 
And so here, nobody loves divorce. Jesus is saying, you know what divorce is? Divorce is proof of sin. It's proof that it's proof of your hard-heartedness. And so his response to these Pharisees who are testing him is to take this any cause divorce policy and to overturn it. That's his response. He overturns the any cause divorce and he affirms the more traditional interpretation. That's what he does here. And what it's interesting, what he doesn't mention is the other reason why a divorce is permissible, which is neglect. Neglect. So before Deuteronomy, back in Exodus... Moses envisions a a different situation where you've got two people. You've got a a man and you've got a slave woman who are engaged to one another. And the man decides not to marry her after all, but to bail and marry somebody else. And Moses says, no, 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 not so fast. That woman has rights. He says, if he marries another woman, he must not deprive the first one of her food or clothing or marital rights. If he doesn't provide her with these three things, she is to go free without any payment of money. And, you know, that's a huge revelation in some ways. You know, there's an English theologian named David Instone Brewer, and he literally wrote the book on divorce and remarriage in the church. And he says that everyone, even a slave wife, had three rights within marriage. The rights to food and clothing and love. And if these were neglected, then the wronged spouse had the right to seek freedom from that marriage. And that's why today in in weddings, we make vows to love and honor and keep one another or to love and honor and obey. And the reason here is, is simply this. If you don't provide their basic needs, that's neglect. And, and so divorce is permissible. And so to answer our question, what breaks a marriage? We see that scripture gives us two answers. A marriage is broken by betrayal, either the betrayal of sexual immorality or the betrayal of neglect. And it seems to me those are not two different things, but it's it's one thing. The covenant is being broken by betrayal and happens either through sexual immorality or through neglect. The other thing to notice here, though, is that when Jesus himself was challenged about divorce, when they came at him with a question about the any cause divorce policy, Jesus overturns it, but he doesn't overturn the divorce for neglect. Do you see that? So he's a, he's a no when it comes to the any cause divorce policy, but he doesn't seem to be a no when it comes to neglect. Now, you might argue, well, that's you might say that's an argument from silence, and you might be right, but it's a really loud silence. Like, that's a silence that screams. Like, it seems like Jesus, what Jesus is, is doing here is he's not against divorce per se, but he is against making divorce easy and making marriage out to be something that's like cheap. Okay. And, and that seems to be Paul's view too, because we're going to, as we join him in first Corinthians seven, we're going to see how he answers the question, when can a Christian divorce and remarry? And what he says is based on what Jesus says and what Jesus left unsaid. Okay, he applies it kind of on a case-by-case basis. The question is, when can a Christian divorce and remarry? The, and he's going to give four answers, two no's and two yeses. The first no is this. He says, it's, a, it's wrong to divorce and remarry if you decide that you want to bail. Okay, so here, Paul looks at these, this Christian church in Corinth and he has this, this general principle and he says, 
A wife must not separate from her husband, and a husband must not divorce his wife. Do you know why? Verse 10, he says, the Lord has already spoken on this. This is not me speaking. This is the Lord. Like Jesus has, what Jesus has said applies in this case. Marriage is for life. It's a lifelong covenant between a man and a woman. If you just feel like a new start, that's not okay. Uh, if you just, if you're disappointed with your husband, or if you find your wife disappointing, that's not, that's not okay. We're not saying that that's reason to divorce because not every way that we might sin against each other, not every way that we hurt each other, not every way that we disappoint each other rises to the level of having broken the covenant. And so if you try to divorce that person and remarry, that's actually adultery. So Paul's first answer here is no. Divorce and remarriage is actually wrong if you're just deciding that you want to bail on the marriage. The second no is it's a no if they want to stay. So it's a no if you want to bail. It's also a no if they decide they want to stay. What do I mean? So verse 12, Paul begins and says, okay, to the rest of you guys, this is not something Jesus spoke specifically about, but I'll do my best. So suppose your spouse isn't a believer, and I get it if you sort of fear that maybe being married to this person might harm your family, might maybe you think that it's going to make you unclean or make your, you know, make your church impure or something like that. That's that's not a thing in the new covenant. Okay, what he's going to say here is you must not divorce them. The reason, verse fourteen, is because it turns out they are sanctified by you. The unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife. The unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Now, and you're like, really? Like, it almost sounds like Paul is saying that there is a back door to the kingdom now. Like, salvation is by faith in Jesus or by being married to someone who trusts him. And that's, that's not what's going on here. Can I be totally honest with you? Scholars really don't know for sure what Paul is getting at in this section, but I think it's it's helpful if we look outside of our own tradition. So you know how there are some church traditions that that baptize babies, right? Like there's Catholics and Anglicans, but there's also like you know Presbyterians and some Methodists and United and 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 the reason why they feel comfortable baptizing babies isn't because they believe that those babies are saved by baptism, but they're baptizing those kids in order to mark them as having been included in the covenant community. Like, because of the saving faith of their parents, those children belong to the church as well. And it seems like what Paul is saying is that a believing husband or a believing wife actually brings real grace and blessing and light to that family. Like, like you're the presence of Jesus in that home. And so in, in a sense, you share that, you pass on that blessing, not just to your children, but also in some way, in some sense, to your unbelieving spouse. And so don't let your differences separate you. Like you don't have to divorce that person. Those differences actually can bring you together. So don't divorce an unbeliever who wants to stay with you. If they're committed to the marriage, you don't divorce them. That's not okay. So that's another no. Paul's given us two no's and now he's here's, here's a yes. Here's a yes. It's okay if they decide to leave. Divorce and remarriage is okay if your unbelieving spouse decides to bail on you. Verse 15, if the unbeliever leaves, 
let it be so. Like if, if that person decides they can't handle being married to a Christian, and if they decide to bail on the marriage, let it be so. Now, Paul anticipates an objection. It's natural. I, like, come on, Paul, I can't let her go. I love her. Or, Paul, I, I, how can you ask me to give up on this marriage? I can save him. I know I can. And I, I bet some of you have seen marriages like this. Maybe you grew up in marriages like this, where there was a person who was a follower of Jesus and they're married to someone who is not, and they begged their non-Christian spouse to stay. And they and, and they and and so they accommodated and they decided, like, I promise I'll, I'll keep this Bible stuff to myself. I won't make you come with me to church. We don't have to, we don't have to send the kids to Sunday school. I promise. Just don't leave. Like, we'll make it work. And you know they suffered for it, right? And in Paul, verse 16, here he's saying, that's not what God wants for you. Like, how do you know whether you'll save your husband? How do you know whether you'll save your wife? That's not your job. You can't change them. You can't save them. And, and, and so if they insist on leaving, you let them go. Let it be so. Because that's not because God doesn't want you to orient your life around changing another person who doesn't want to be changed. That's not what God wants for you. God wants you to live in peace. So let them go. Now something really important has just happened here, if you're following. Like there would be lots of evangelicals who kind of trip over this passage and say, well, that seems like a really slippery slope. Like if we allow divorce for abandonment, then What's to stop anybody from seeking a divorce and claiming that they've been abandoned by their spouse? Like, I actually know of cases where two Christians are married to one another, and he's really abusive, and she came to the church leaders with bruises for help, and those leaders of the church said, I'm sorry, ma'am, but if he hasn't cheated on you, if he hasn't committed adultery, then this marriage isn't over. He's stayed with you, and so you have no grounds for asking for a divorce or asking to leave him. You must stay with him. Is there any evidence of sexual immorality? Is there any evidence of a porn addiction? Is he having an affair? I mean, if not, and he's willing to stay with you, I'm sorry, but our hands are tied. And, you know, that is not what's going on here. Paul here, in order to solve this, in order to answer this question about abandonment, he goes all the way back to Exodus and he uses the Exodus argument where divorce was allowed if you failed to care for your spouse, if you failed to provide what your spouse needs. And Paul's saying, when your spouse bails on you, if they abandon you and give up on the marriage, if they do that, that's the same thing. It's the same thing. Like you can't honor your marriage vows if you bail on your spouse. If they abandon you, that's a, that is a case of neglect. You let them go. And you can remarry if you wish. You are not bound in that circumstance. So on this, Paul is a yes. He's a yes. And there's another yes, which comes a little bit later in the passage. After Paul has been uh, talking about singleness, the marriage is over if they're dead. The marriage is over if they're dead. And so this is not probably not controversial. Verse 39, he says that if your husband dies, you're free to marry. Just, just marry a believer, okay? Uh, it's interesting that in verse 40, he says, you don't have to. In fact, he says, you'll be happier if you stay as you are. So in other words, you know, there, just because in these cases, divorce and remarriage is permissible, 
it's not a rule. Like, not only do you not have to divorce, although you may, but you don't have to remarry. You may, but you don't have to remarry. It's not a rule. And so what we've seen here is divorce and remarriage is allowed in some cases and not in others. It's wrong if you just decide you want to bail, but the marriage isn't broken. It's wrong if they're willing to stay, but it's okay to divorce and remarry if they break the covenant by abandoning you. And it's okay to remarry because your spouse has died. Now, fourth question I want to wrestle with here is, what does our divorced neighbor need from the church? What does the divorced neighbor need from the church? You know, it seems to me we don't get to choose whether we face marriage struggles in the people that we care about. Like, we don't get, we don't get a vote in whether or not that happens. We only get to choose how we're going to respond when it comes. And, you know, it's, it's interesting because most of us the broken for most of us the brokenness of divorce is not just a, an issue like this is not some academic interesting debate about what the bible says this is actually about your life this is about your life this is about my life like imagine if imagine if the parish priest had said to Ivan Molesky back in 1976 well you know ma'am according to scripture you're in a sinful relationship if you want to belong in this parish and this congregation, you must go back to your first husband or we cannot allow you to belong. You can't because God hates divorce. Like if it had gone down like that, can I just tell you something? There is no Mike Molesky. Like if not for unbiblical divorce and remarriage, I don't exist. And then there's no Heather and Mike. There is no Maggie and Stella and Jamie. And I know that I'm not alone in this. As I look around, yeah, for a whole bunch of us, you wouldn't exist either. Like this church, Benediction Church, doesn't exist if not for separations and divorces and remarriages that didn't follow the biblical pattern, that didn't follow the biblical path. So what do you do with that? I don't know. I don't know what to do with that. I know that it's pretty humbling. I know that it's humbling because I am a walking, talking, worshiping contradiction. Because I hate the harm and the suffering that divorce causes. I also know I wouldn't be here without it. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm sort of grateful that by God's grace, he tolerates it. Now, maybe that sounds like I'm soft on sin. Some people might, might accuse me of that. That's fine. I, I don't mind. I can handle that. I don't owe that person anything. But there is a debt that we owe to our neighbors who are walking through the pain of marriage troubles and divorce. There's actually two things. And the first is this. The first thing that we owe that person is grace. We owe them the compassion of Jesus. We owe them his, his empathy and his friendship and his peace. We owe them our prayers and we owe them some hope in the good news of the gospel, and we owe them love and acceptance. Don't we? I hope that if I had been there, then I would have been able to say, you know, Mrs. Molesky, I see you don't have much peace right now. I see that you, you came to your shepherds for help, and they made it worse. And I am so sorry, because that was not the way of Jesus, and we owe you a profound apology. We, we sure don't deserve to be forgiven for that, but we, but perhaps you'll let us make it right. So that's one thing that we owe 
our, our neighbor who's going through the pain of divorce right now. But the other thing I think the church owes is this. It's relationship. Relationship. You know, I hope that, if, that, we, that we would come up beside you know, our neighbor and say, we would love to walk through this with you if you'll let us. We see that you've suffered. We face that you're facing some hard decisions. Would you, maybe just as a starting point, would you share your story with us? Because, you know, God's word promises God has called us to live in peace. So maybe if you help me understand what it's like to be you, maybe I can offer you some of that peace. That seems to me to be the debt that we owe our neighbor who's going through the pain of marriage struggles and divorce. And, you know, that's the same debt that we owe to any struggler or any sufferer. We owe them relationship and we owe them the grace of Jesus Christ. And so as we wrap up, I want to offer a few questions that I think will help us to develop some table manners in this area. So some table manners questions. Number one, how might we guard our marriages against divorce? Because, you know, we must. We've got to do this. It, it, you know, if there is, maybe there's sexual sin in your marriage. Maybe there's abuse in your marriage. Maybe there is neglect. And, and if so, none of that should shock us. You know, it shouldn't surprise anybody when there's sinful patterns in a Christian marriage. What should surprise us, though, is when Christians just don't do anything about it until it's basically too late. Like, what, it's, what's, what's surprising is when we assume that we can handle these things on our own. Of, co- of course we can't. And so if this is you, I, I would want you to know you have friends here. You have shepherds here who love you and who have the tools to walk through this with you if you will let us. So how might we guard our marriages against divorce? The second question I will hope you'll take with you is, what does it look like for you to love your divorced neighbor? Okay, what does it look like for you to love your divorced neighbor? Because, you know, I bet that there are people in your life who need to know that you don't condemn them for being divorced. Like, I bet it's a taboo subject. Like, you you see them with a big scarlet D on their forehead. And 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 I would just want to ask, like, how how could you show that you love and accept them. What if, what, what, what if you were to ask, maybe as a starting point, what if you were to ask them if they would just share this part of their story with you and you were to listen without judgment, without trying to fix it? So how could you love your divorced neighbor? Um, third question, are we prepared to handle marriage difficulties? Are we prepared to walk with one another through marriage difficulties? You know, sometimes I wonder what would happen if... God forbid, one of the marriages among us within this church ended in divorce. And again, God forbid, but sooner or later, as more and more people join this church, Lord willing, it's going to happen. And I wonder, like, could we handle that? Or would we even want to handle that? Like, would could, could we actually come alongside and support the couple going through this difficulty? Or would they disappear before it got to that point? Or like, if we're honest, would we even just prefer that they, they leave and kind of make it easier on us? Like, like if there's a guy having an affair, would we just pray that he leaves the church first and just makes it easier on all of us? Man, like, I, I would just want to say, divorce is always hard, okay? Yes, of course it's hard. It's hard on the community, but it's not like it's hardest on the community, Right? So, so let's agree as a church, we're not going to make it harder for anybody than it already is. Because you see, 
you know, as I reflect on my family, which I've been doing a lot over the last few weeks, I, I know now why, you know, my parents didn't have any friends when I was a kid. You know, like we'd see relatives once in a while, but we did not have a church with, with of, of people with whom we could do life together. You know what I mean? We weren't exactly getting invited places for dinner. We were this huge, awkward, blended family. And I, I wonder now if, um, if maybe a reason why my parents had so many kids is that we knew that we were all we had. Like if we had any chance at experiencing community and acceptance, we had to create that for ourselves. So eight kids later, boom, Moleskis. Now imagine inviting that family over for faith family dinner. You put out 10 extra seats. The kids are loud and badly behaved and they say bad words and they burp and they fart at the table and they take more than their share of the food and the mom and dad are doing their best to look normal and keep it together but they had a massive fight on the way here and it shows and they're going to have another massive fight as soon as they leave this place and they are super embarrassed because they know that their kids are super badly behaved and they are never going to be invited back can i just ask you a question here who do you think it's harder to be in that situation Like, is it harder to be the host watching this family eat all your food and make messes that you're going to have to clean up? Or is it harder to be those parents? Like, of course it's them. Uh, They believe that they are misfits. They believe God hates them because they're divorced. They believe that they're misfits, and they are not. Now, you may have heard the church is a hospital for sinners. It's not a museum for saints, and I totally believe that. Like, that's, that's so true. The church is a hospital for sinners. It's not a museum for saints. But you know what else the church is? The church is also a marriage. A church is a people who are married to Jesus because he overcame all the differences between us. He chose not to put us aside and he decided to marry us. He didn't choose us because of our good behavior and our good table manners. And he doesn't divorce us. He doesn't reject us because of our bad behavior. You know, every, every one of us was a misfit. And every one of us has been unfaithful. Some of us here have been unfaithful in marriage. Some of of us with money or with materialism or with greed or with with laziness or with violence or with, with anger and on and on. And in every case, Jesus has pursued us and he didn't stop until he had died and rose to make us his bride and bring us to his table. And we're told in Ephesians 5, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. We have good news, friends. We have good news for each other. We have good news for our city. Because whether you are single or you are married or you are divorced, Uh, No matter what you have done, no matter what has been done to you, no matter what you have been through, Jesus Christ has pledged himself to us in marriage forever, and he will never, ever divorce us. Let's pray together. Thanks for listening to this message from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. Feel free to copy and share these resources, but please don't alter the content in any way. 
We invite you to visit us online again soon at www.benediction.church for more teaching and information about how you can join us in serving and praying that it would be in Hamilton as it is in heaven.